We'll take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. During this Advent season, we've walked through the first chapter of Luke's gospel. Not taking up yet the the story that many churches and families are so intimately familiar with in Luke chapter 2. I imagine many have the tradition of perhaps sitting around a tree and reading the birth narrative of Christ from Luke chapter 2, perhaps on or just before Christmas Day. But we decided not to get there too soon, because that's what Advent's about. Advent's about waiting. Advent is about preparation. Advent is about looking with anticipation toward the fulfillment of what God has promised. And so we've been looking at these scenes that unfold in the first chapter of Luke's gospel. And we've met a Jewish priest, Zechariah, and his wife, Elizabeth. They were aged and without children. And the angel Gabriel told Zechariah in the temple one day that his wife would conceive and bear a son, and they were to name him John. And he would be the the forerunner of the Christ, the Messiah. Not the Messiah himself, but the one who would announce his presence and prepare the way. And then we met a young, unmarried virgin named Mary. And that same angel appeared to her and said that she indeed would conceive miraculously by the Holy Spirit and bear a son. And his name would be Jesus, Yeshua, meaning uh, the Lord saves. And so then we met where we saw Elizabeth carrying John and Mary carrying Jesus met together in our passage last week and celebrated and blessed the Lord and praised him for his grace. And we considered the, the lengthy song of praise that, that Mary offered, the so-called Magnificat from the Latin uh, Vulgate translation of, of the Bible, the first word there. And now in the final scene of Luke chapter 1, where we revisit Zechariah and Elizabeth and take up the story of what happens to them. And in this passage, as we conclude Luke chapter 1, we get a story and a song. And we'll just take those in turn. We'll look at what happens in the story portion, and then we'll consider together the song of prophecy and praise that we find. And of course, we're considering the question, how might these stories and songs and these passages help us to prepare for the coming of the Lord? So if you look with me at verse 57, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. We're going to pause there. It's easy to brush past those verses. It's just a little bit of narrative detail, and then on we go. But we need to stop and recognize the time came for her to give birth, and she bore a son. This is an essential observation. God keeps his promises. This is what he had foretold by the angel Gabriel about nine months earlier, and now he has brought it to pass. Aren't you thankful that God keeps his promises? 
You will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name John, and here we are nine months later, and she has born a son. Praise God for his faithfulness. And the people, the community, the neighbors and relatives, it says, around her heard. What did they hear? Well, of course, that her son had been born. But the way that they hear it, look in verse 58, is this, that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. You may remember Elizabeth's praise back in verse 25. Verse 24 and 25, it says, After these days his, that is Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, and here is her praise to God in verse 25, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. So there was this sense of shame and embarrassment on her part because she was unable to to have any children. And there's this expectation and this communal sort of hope and anticipation for a child to be born. And so obviously Elizabeth is well past the years where that would have been possible for her. And so there has just been this heavy sense of shame that has just settled upon her for years and years and years. And so back in verse 25, she had praised God for removing her reproach in even just conceiving uh, a, a child in her womb. And now that the son has been born, her community recognizes immediately God has been merciful to her. God has removed that shame and that reproach And they recognize the birth of her son as the Lord, showing her mercy. And then, in light of that, they do what the Christian community should always do. They rejoiced with her. Which fulfills what the angel Gabriel told Zechariah back in chapter 1, verse 14, that many will rejoice at his birth. But what they're doing here expresses the beauty and joy of Christian community. Neighbors and relatives in your life who will point to God's mercy in your life, who will rejoice with you when you rejoice. And of course, the flip side of that coin is who will weep with you when you weep. And so Elizabeth has this community around her, and they hear that she's given birth to a son, and they interpret it absolutely rightly as God's mercy to her. They gather around her. They celebrate with her. They bring the casseroles, right? This is what we do. We celebrate with one another the grace and mercy of God poured out on the lives of his people. Now, to be sure, in the scope of this story, God is doing much bigger things for all his people, which will be relevant for all humankind throughout all history. But in the context of the enormity and significance of this birth in terms of salvation history, Please note that God is not too busy to see Elizabeth, to see her need, and to show mercy to her. And rest assured, child of God, he's not too busy doing big stuff to see you and your need and to show mercy to you. This is God's heart for his children
So the child has been born. The town is gathered around with the casseroles, and they're celebrating. And verse 59 says, And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. This would have been the pattern, and of course in fulfilling, uh, keeping with the law that God had given to Abraham and then to Moses, and specifically in the book of Leviticus, they're told on the eighth day that each male child would be circumcised as a, as a sign of their uh, inclusion in the covenant community. And so the eighth day has come. It's time. All right. And so they apparently come to the family. All right. We're ready to circumcise the child and apparently to announce the name. All right. We're going to announce the name of this child. And now, again, in this culture, even more than in ours, a son was the honor and glory of a father. So for a father to have a son, and his firstborn son especially, it was customary for the father to name the son after himself. And you see that that's just what the people assume. It says they would have named him or called him Zechariah after his father. All right, time to circumcise him, time to announce his name, little Zechariah, here we go. But, look at verse 60, his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Wait a second. What is going on here? Is she trying to pull a fast one on us? Remember that Zechariah had been struck mute and probably deaf after his meeting with the angel Gabriel because he had been slow to believe. And he said, how will I know that this is true? Well, the angel said, basically, as a sign of that, you will be unable to speak. You will be silent until these things come to pass. And so Zechariah can't speak up. And it says in just a minute that they are signing to him, which probably indicates that he can't speak and he can't hear. So they say, all right, let's, let's hear the boy's name, uh, young Zechariah here, let's name Junior. And Elizabeth says, no, 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 we're not going to name him Zechariah, we're going to name him John. And so they're very concerned about this, very confused. This is unusual. And so... Uh, they, they, don't know, they don't know what to do with this. By the way, when will we stop being surprised that God keeps doing things in surprising ways? This is how he operates, isn't it? He doesn't always operate according to our norms and patterns and expectations. In fact, the whole Christmas story is one giant upturning of all of our expectations and how you would expect God to send his king into the world. So we should stop being surprised when things don't go exactly like we'd expect them to go. But Nevertheless, Zechariah and Elizabeth's neighbors are, are confused. What, what, what are you talking about? And so they think, well, let's, let's go and, and see if we can get Zechariah to confirm this because surely Elizabeth is trying to like, just get her way and she sees that Zechariah is not in a position to, to speak up. And so they made signs to him. Again, if he could hear, they would just talk to him. So they make signs to him inquiring what he wanted him to be called. What, what are we calling this child? It's Zechariah, right? Just confirm it for us. And he asked for a writing tablet. Okay, make the motion of some kind of a pen. I need something to write with. So they get him this writing tablet, and he scribbles a note. His name is John. And they all wondered. His name is John. So simple. Zechariah's learned his lesson, don't you think? His name is John. Not, this is not negotiable. This is not up for debate. In fact, it's already done. He doesn't just say, no, we're going to name him John. He says, his name is John. You see, God already named him. We already heard what his name was. This is not for us to decide. His name's John, the end of the story. And everybody wonders. They are all perplexed. This is so 
unusual. Verse 64, immediately, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. Now we don't have this detail, this is a bit speculative, but perhaps the very first things that he was able to say were those words, his name is John. Maybe he was writing it and began sort of attempting to read it aloud, and he heard his own voice, the sound of his own voice for the first time in nine months, call out, his name is John, as if to say, the Lord is over this thing. The Lord will have his way. And his mouth is opened, and he speaks, and he begins to praise God. I think that the content of that praise, that blessing of God, that verse 64 mentions is what we have down in verses 67 or 68 through 79. We'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. But I think when he opens his mouth, he pours forth with this praise that we have recorded for us in just a second. He speaks and praises God. And in response of this, of course, fear came upon all the neighbors. Because we only have so many emotional responses to things, right? And when something is just crazy... Something is just way out of the ordinary. Something surprises us. Sometimes it's joy. Sometimes it's excitement. Sometimes it's just plain fear. What is going on? And that seems to be how the people respond here. Fear came upon all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them, and I think the them that they heard had to do with all of the, the stories surrounding the birth of John and Zechariah's silence for nine months and then the fact that they named him John instead of Zechariah and then Zechariah suddenly after nine months of silence bursts out in this long kind of prophetic song of, of blessing and praise and probably even the content of what he said, which we'll look at in a minute. All who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. That's probably the right question to be asking in light of all of this. Something is unusual, and it had something to do with this kid. Who is this? What is this child going to be? And with the context that we have, we'd almost like to say to them, listen, if you think he's something, wait till you see the one who comes after him. Wait till you see the one that he's going to point people to. You see, what makes John so special is not who he is. It's a detail that's embedded at the tail end of verse 66. For the hand of the Lord was with him. That's what makes John special. And again, it wasn't his choice. It wasn't his doing. It's just God setting his hand, setting his grace upon somebody. But just as the hand of the Lord was upon the prophets like Elijah and Ezekiel, the hand of the Lord is upon this young infant, John. There's no boundary too far. There's no obstacle too strong for the hand of the Lord. What then will this child be? So that's the story. That's the, the birth of John and the sort of uh, the, the commotion surrounding his circumcision and the naming of him and the upturning of their expectations that they would name him 
Zechariah, and then Zechariah speaking for the first time in nine months and prophesying, and everybody is afraid and wondering, right? Marveling at what is going on. And then Luke records for us in verses 67, well, the next section, there's a little bit of narrative sort of book framing, but, um, but verses 68 through 79 give us this sort of speech, this song of Zechariah. It's often called the Benedictus, just like Mary's song is called the Magnificat because of the first word in the Latin translation. Zechariah's song is called the Benedictus, based on its first word in the Latin translation, because what he says first is, blessed be the Lord God. So that blessing, Benedictus, is the first word. So you may hear people refer to this in that way. I'm going to read for you the whole song, and then we'll talk about it, break it down a little bit. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. We're going to pause right there. So before we get the song, we have the brief narrative detail in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And so the Holy Spirit among the community of God's people that we've already seen expands. And like Elizabeth, John in the womb, Mary, and Jesus, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And after nine months of silence and probably deafness, he bursts forth into a song of praise and prophecy. Because in Luke and Acts, you can find, follow this pretty uh, routinely throughout his writings, when the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody, when somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit, they speak God's praise. That is the pattern over and over again in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. And so here again, Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit speaks, and what he speaks is this prophetic blessing of God and upon John, his son. The song has two sections, much like Mary's did. Mary's song was about God's grace to her personally and then God's grace to his people corporately. Zechariah's song is a little bit different. In verses 68 to 75, Zechariah praises God for providing a Savior. So he actually kind of starts with the big picture of what God is doing for all of his people in answering his covenant promises. Zechariah praises God for providing a Savior. And then in verses 76 to 79, Zechariah prophesies over his son concerning the role that he would play. Actually addresses John directly. And you, child, he says. 
So let's look at each of those sections of this song in turn. Section one, praise to God for providing a savior. Now, it's noteworthy that Zechariah speaks of Christ before he speaks of his own son, who is clearly the, the narrative centerpiece of this story, and of this paragraph. It's the, the prophesying about the birth of John and then the birth of John and the naming of John, right? So John is really at the center of the story elements here. But when Zechariah, filled with the Spirit, opens his mouth and praises God, he doesn't start by thanking God for John. He starts by pointing to the bigger thing that God is doing. He recognizes clearly the birth of John, this prophet, this forerunner, signals bigger, fuller things. It indicates Zechariah's awareness that John's role would be preparatory, not the main event. It also reflects Luke's emphasis throughout the gospel. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of God's revelation to mankind, and it is he who brings deliverance and salvation to his people. So just worth noting that Zechariah begins here not by talking about John, but by talking about Christ and God's promises fulfilled in the sending of this Savior. And look at verse 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for, all right, that's going to ground what he's giving thanks to God for. Why should God be blessed? Why should God be praised? Because, and then we get four things specifically. Number one, he has visited and redeemed his people. He has visited and redeemed his people. Now, the a visitation of the Lord, biblically speaking, could be either real good or real bad. A visitation of the Lord could be a visitation of judgment. It could be God's waited long enough, been patient long enough, and the grace period is over, and God is visiting in judgment. But that's clearly not the kind of visitation that Zechariah sees here. That's clearly not the kind of visitation that's in view. This is a, visita a visitation for redemption. To redeem is to pay a debt and buy somebody back out from under that debt. So to say that God has visited and redeemed his people is to say he's drawn near to us for our good. He's drawn near to us to save us. This is our deliverance coming. The second thing he says in verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Raised up a horn of salvation. That's language that we don't often use, but this is the, the image of an animal's horn, like an ox and the horn and with which it would gore its opponents, right? A horn, an animal's horn is an image of strength. And it's as if he's saying that God, like this strong animal with its horn, is taking up the cause of his people and bringing salvation from our enemies. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He speaks a lot uh, throughout this song of how what God is doing now is in answer, in fulfillment to all that God has done and promised in the past. So you see in verse 70, he says, uh, excuse me, verse 69, he raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. Well, that's an important detail because David was the one to whom God had promised somebody in your family will reign forever. So the people are expecting a Davidic king who would reign forever. And he recognizes the horn of salvation that's being raised up is one that comes from the house of David. So he's clearly connecting it to that promise. 
And then verse 70, he says, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. All right? And so he's looking back and recognizing that all of these promises that God has made to his people through the prophets of old are being met, are being fulfilled in the sending of this Savior. Third, in verse 72, he has shown mercy. He has shown the mercy promised to our fathers. The mercy promised to our fathers. Again, all the blessings that God had promised to his people that would come, he is now doing that. He is showing mercy. And then number four, he has remembered his holy covenant. Second half of verse 72. To, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And then he specifically talks about that covenant. Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And he's already mentioned the promise to David. The oath that he swore to Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And so he had promised to Abraham a, a people. You will be the father of a great nation and a place. There was a land to which he would lead him and that his descendants would live in forever. And to David, he's promised a person to rule on the throne over this people. And these covenant promises are in Zechariah's mind as he thanks God for what he is doing, even in the birth of his son John, who would be the forerunner of that Savior. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He has shown the mercy promised to our fathers. He has remembered his holy covenant. God's doing bigger things than just Zechariah and Elizabeth's family. And he's doing bigger things than just the role that John himself would play. This, what's unfolding, is the salvation of his people that he's promised from the beginning, and that he's been working and waiting, and the people have been longing for for centuries. It's all coming to pass. Now, there's a question worth asking about the, the nature of the salvation that this Savior would bring. What kind of salvation would Christ provide? Is this a physical, political salvation? Or is it a spiritual salvation that's in view? Zechariah seems to grasp, I think, that both of these things are in view. That the Messiah will bring with him both the spiritual healing and deliverance of the people of Israel and the national and political wellness of a people under the rule of God's anointed king. Both of those things are in view. And in fact, in Israel's history, they tend to rise and fall together. When the people are spiritually well, that is, they are believing God and honoring the covenant and doing what he commands, they are well as a nation. They have somebody on the throne, and they have safety from their enemies. And then when the people begin to turn away from God, 
and the people start to worship foreign gods, and the people start to make deals with other idol worshipers, usually things start to go badly for them as a nation, right? That's the way that the story of Israel throughout the Old Testament works, because their spiritual well-being is very closely tied to their national, physical, kind of political well-being, because in, under the Old Covenant, the people of God are a nation, and indeed, in this current situation that Zechariah and the people of God are, are in, Israel is under Roman oppression because of their own sin and rebellion against God. The place they find themselves in physically is a response to their spiritual bankruptcy and idolatry. And so the spiritual and political, so to speak, go hand in hand for Israel and he's right to recognize that. So when he speaks of the salvation coming and, and, and them being saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, he probably has in mind both the earthly, political, national powers that are against us, like, for example, Rome, because we're under Roman occupation. So when Zechariah says God's going to save us from our enemies, he probably has in his mind that they'll be saved from the political oppression of the Roman Empire. But I think he also is thinking and recognizing it's deeper than that. It's bigger than that. Because the people of God have been wandering and wayward and abandoning God, and God is now drawing near to them in mercy to show them forgiveness, to show them grace. And so there's a, both a physical and a spiritual component to the salvation that this Messiah would bring. But there's something that Zechariah probably doesn't yet understand. And to explain that, I'm going to quote Tom Schreiner. He says it better than I could. He says, Zechariah does not realize that spiritual deliverance will come first and political deliverance will follow in the eschaton, that is in that final age, that the new order of the ages will be realized when the kingdom arrives in its fullness. So there is a sense in which Zechariah, perhaps, and many of the people, as you read the Gospels, you get the sense that there is this urgency, this immediacy to what the people are expecting Jesus as the Christ to do. Now he's going to kick out the Romans, right? Now he's going to give us the kingdom back. And they're thinking, this is happening in a political way right here, right now. But God is telling a bigger story than that. God is telling a story that's far beyond the, the political national wellness of Israel in that day or any nation in our day. There is a political wellness, there is a national completeness to the, the situation that God's people will enjoy when we are safe from our enemies, and we have been set free from all of those who would oppose us or persecute us or oppress us, but that day isn't yet. Indeed, that day is coming when Christ returns to establish his forever kingdom. And so there is a sense in which, to, to the extent that we expect this immediate political wholeness we're going to be disappointed because we have our eye on the wrong ball. Because that's not the story God is writing. The story, the story that God is writing is not just, if an earthly nation will honor me, I'll make sure that they're in good condition. That's not a big enough story. God is writing a story much bigger than that. God is saying, I will save my people, who are not any one nation. They are all those who are redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. I will save my people from their sins and their spiritual oppression, and one day when I return and establish my kingdom, they will be with me forever in peace and safety. 
That's the story God's writing here. And Zechariah understands parts of that, but probably not all of it. So that's the first half of his song. And the second half of his song, he turns and addresses John directly. So this, this part of this uh, song is a prophecy about John's role. What would, what would John do in support of this saving work that God is doing through his Messiah? Look at verse 76. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Recall that back in verse 32, we were told that Jesus would be called the Son of the Most High. So again, John and Jesus are not on the same playing field here. Jesus is the Son of the Most High, but John would be called Prophet of the Most High. And he will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So his role as the forerunner is a preparatory role. And we see him doing this. If you continue reading in Luke and in Matthew and the places where, and John, where, where, where John the Baptist shows up, we see him doing this preparatory role as he baptizes in the Jordan. He says, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. So yes, I have this ministry, but the whole point of this ministry is just to prepare you for the bigger one. There's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Speaking, of course, of, of Jesus, the Christ. We see him doing this when he calls others to see and worship Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he saw Jesus coming by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. That's John's ministry. It's pointing. Look at Christ. We see him doing this when he's confronted in John chapter 1 by priests and Levites trying to figure out who he is. And he testifies, I am not the Christ. And he goes on to say, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, this is not about me. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm just the voice calling out, saying, look at him. Listen to him. Believe in him. John 1.31, he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. The whole purpose of John's ministry is to prepare people to listen to Jesus. That's what his role would be. And Zechariah recognizes that. Again, filled by the Holy Spirit, given the supernatural knowledge, he is aware that the role that John would play would be not for his own glory, but indeed for his own effacing for the purpose of exalting Christ, for the purpose of pointing to this Savior that God was providing for his people. He continues, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Knowledge here is more than just awareness. It's experience. To know salvation is more than just to be aware that salvation exists or that, oh yeah, I think I got saved. To know salvation in this sense is to experience the grace of God in its fullness. And John himself won't save anyone, right? He doesn't say that he's, he's, he'll prepare the way of the Lord by bringing salvation. No, he says to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. He would simply point sinners to the one who will 
forgive him. And by doing so, he will give knowledge of salvation. And here, nestled in the middle of this prophetic song of praise, we come to the very heart of the Christian gospel. The whole reason that Christmas came about in the first place. Namely, we are sinners in need of saving. And that salvation comes by forgiveness of sin. This visitation of God to his people is an act of deliverance. He draws near to them to redeem them, to rescue them. And it hinges upon forgiveness of sins. Because God can't draw near to what is unholy, to what is profane. God must only draw near to that which is holy and righteous. And we ain't it. So the only way that he can draw near to us is if our sins are forgiven. And the only way that he can forgive our sins is if our sins are covered, that is, paid for. He can't just brush them aside, saying the law no longer matters. He can only forgive sin if somebody takes our sin for us. And that is why Christmas is good news, because this deliverer has come. The one who would bear our sin has come. The one who would purchase our forgiveness has come. Sinner, believe on Christ and so be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. In verse 78, he tells us why. Why is God doing this? Because of the tender mercy of our God. Just because this is who he is. He's kind. He's loving. He's gentle. He's compassionate. He's merciful. This salvation, this forgiveness of sin comes about as an expression of God's covenant mercy. It's his mercy, his heart of loving kindness toward his people that has caused the sunrise to visit us from on high. That's not just beautiful language, it's also a quotation from the prophet Malachi. Malachi 4.2, God told the people, For you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Clearly a messianic promise, clearly pointing forward to this deliverer that God would send and Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, sees that prophecy fulfilled in the birth, not of John, but of Jesus, the Messiah. Charles Wesley, of course, takes up these, th th this theme and this Old Testament allusion in his hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Or in the third verse that says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Christ has come to bring salvation to his people. Verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The arrival of Jesus Christ in the world, this sunrise from on high, gives light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. 
And here is a reference to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Words that also may sound familiar to you. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. It's just a few verses later in Isaiah 9, verse 6 and following, that the prophet declares, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Clearly in view is the coming of this Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself. And his coming is the sunrise from on high. And it is his coming that sheds this light into those who sit in darkness. That is those who are in sin. Those who are under the wrath of God. Those who do not yet know the salvation that God has come to bring. It's the arrival of this Prince of Peace that Zechariah Zechariah celebrates in his song in Luke chapter 1. It's the birth of Jesus, about three months from this point, that brings the visitation of God's heavenly sunrise to his people who have walked in darkness. And it's the birth of his son, John, the forerunner, of the Christ, the prophet who prepares the way of the Lord, that signals to him and to the world, God at long last is coming to his people. Zechariah's song ends, and Luke concludes the narrative concerning John with this simple summary in verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John's prophetic role is to be that that voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he quite literally embodies that role by living in the wilderness. I don't know exactly when that started, probably not from his infancy. But at some point when he was old enough to go out on his own, he went into the wilderness and we're told elsewhere that he ate locusts and wild honey as his food, and he dressed in camel hair. He's kind of a wild, wilderness kind of a guy. Because all of John's life and ministry was about drawing people's attention, not to what, who he was, but to who he would point others to, right? And so he lives out in the wilderness. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, some 30 years later, we're told, quote, that the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he began his public ministry. He went out to the Jordan and began baptizing and began calling people to see and believe upon the Christ. When he received that word from the Lord in the wilderness, he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And there again is that centerpiece of our good news. The baptism that he was performing was of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repent and believe and your sins will be forgiven. And so we arrive at Luke chapter 2, the very threshold of Christmas. The angel told Zechariah back in chapter 117 that the purpose of God giving John to him and Elizabeth was to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
And that's the question we've been seeking to answer for ourselves in this Advent season. What does it mean for us today to be a people prepared for the coming of the Lord? A few thoughts as we close. Perhaps it means, in part, recognizing that the Lord does not always move on our timetable or in the ways we expect. Israel spent four centuries walking in darkness under Roman occupation with no king in Jerusalem before he visited them with his sunrise from on high. And even the beginnings of this enormous movement in salvation history begins with the slow, quiet progression of a pregnancy. And then the slow, largely unrecorded development of childhood toward maturity. God wasn't didn't seem to be in a hurry. God didn't seem to be drawing attention. And we still find ourselves in waiting for our Savior to come a second time and bring us home to his eternal kingdom, and someday, surely, that feels like it must be a million years away. And perhaps you personally are in a season of waiting. If that's the case, remember you're in good company. And remember, your God sees you, and his heart of mercy is bent toward you. And in his good time, he will visit you. Another way to be a people prepared for Christ's coming is to remind ourselves that our God sees us and our need, and he keeps his promises. In the coming of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago, God kept his promises to his people Israel concerning a savior and a king. We believe that just as surely as he came once, he will come again at the end of history, and God will keep his promises yet again to establish his forever kingdom and welcome his people home with him. And so we wait, trusting that he will fulfill his promises. And perhaps the most important way to be a people prepared for Christ's coming is to recognize our condition as people in need of saving. More specifically, as sinners in need of forgiveness. God promises us in his word in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And today, you can be assured that just as he kept his promises concerning Christ's first coming at Christmas, and just as he will keep his promises concerning Christ's second coming at the end of time, so surely will he keep his promise to you that if you draw near to him in repentance and faith, he will forgive your sins, cleanse your unrighteousness, and receive you as his own child forever.